Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. It's June 14th, 2017. Here with Jeremy Schubert from Luna Bean Media. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're the Nicholson Library at Linfield College. And Jeremy will ask you, why did you get into marketing? Um, I think it kind of by happenstance, which is a lot of the Oregon wine industry, and um, kind of fell into it from doing... Uh, our own business, which was actually writing video game strategy guides, um, and meanwhile, my wife's family owned Panther Creek okay. um, at the time. And so, when we graduated from college, we moved out here um, and started helping the family winery. And so, everything we were learning through marketing and you know a five dollar a month subscription product and you kind of writing, you know, two hundred page video game guides, uh, we started applying to the winery. So this is in the early two thousands. And, um, and at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, fewer wineries definitely, but not mm -hmm. a whole lot of digital marketing going sure, on. Sure. And so we just kind of started applying these little things that were working for our video game business, message boards, chat rooms, uh, still cameras that would take a picture every 30 seconds of our fish tank, for <laughs> example. Nice. Um, you know, the technology has evolved quite a bit. <laughs> but, um, but we started doing that for the, for the winery, and it was working. And so the, the kind of secret that we fell upon was that we were just using the social media tools of the time. Mm -hmm. And we had our winemaker on message boards answering club members' questions. Mm. We had him on a chat once a month. And so it's that same interaction and building that tribe mm -hmm. and just getting to the customer. And it was all working really well. So that's just kind of how we ended up being in the marketing game. And one thing led to another, and more and more kind of wineries started saying, hey, who's doing Panther Creek stuff? And actually it was IPNC who in um, probably 2001, 2002, approached us and said, hey, we want you to build a website for us. And that was the very first kind of real client, if you will, beyond, beyond the family winery. And so um, we kept the video game business going for quite a long time and kind of got to the point where wineries kept asking us, mm -hmm. you know, hey, do you want to work for us? And we kept you know, saying, oh, we kind of have this other thing. And then we were like, you know what? If people keep offering us money, <laughs> we should probably do this. And so we doubled down and about 10 years ago really got serious about doing full-time winery marketing. So in the beginning then, it wasn't you necessarily seeking the business so much as the business seeking you. Yeah, and what, I mean, so you're, you're two college graduates from, from the East Coast and you have uh, degrees in, uh, in English, which means you have no marketable skills, <laughs> right? I know, I know that pain. Right, so, um, so, so when we, actually the way we fell into the video game business was we were playing a, a Zelda game at the time, got stuck, and said so we need to teach ourselves how to build a website. And so the first practice website we ever built in 1999 was a, was a Zelda walkthrough. <laughs> um, and it took off. And that's when we knew we had something there. And so we just basically taught ourselves how to, how to make websites, how to market our own company, how to you know, do everything that was involved in the digital marketing realm at that time and competing against big you know, GameFAQ and sure. GameSpot. And we were always ranking really, really high, always above them. Um, so everything we kind of learned on the fly, uh, then we just applied, like I said, to the, to the wine industry. So when you got into the wine industry and started working with it, you didn't really have a whole lot of guides, a lot of industry-specific guides at that point. So yeah. how did you kind of learn the lingo and learn, I mean, you sure. obviously had some experience with Panther Creek, but how did you kind of learn what you needed to know? Yeah, well, it, it, basically on the ground training. So, you know, age 21, I'm 
in Panther Creek, mill deciding barrels, working harvest three years in a row. Um, and then Allison and I um, basically started, you know, approached your dad and said, you know what, we can probably sell wine out of the winery. This, you know, novel concept at the time that, oh, tasting room could be open. Um, <laughs> and so we negotiated a deal with him and said, okay, well, we're just going to be open one Saturday a month. And let's just see how it goes. Mm -hmm. um, and we literally, if you've ever been in that building, the power plant, you know, it's just a concrete floor. This is before the whole tasting room was redone. We literally had a table and us, and it was a functioning winery, barrels behind us. And so we, we contacted customers through email marketing um, and started to grow that list. And the once a month started to become really, really popular. And we were making really good sales. People were loving it. And we started going to every Saturday. And so we got the kind of on the ground, full on, tasting room experience where we were the the only people at the winery we mm -hmm. were figuring out how to sell the wine and you know it wasn't cheap wine you know it's, it's sure. pretty standard still you know 48 dollar kind of price point mm -hmm. oregon pinot um but but that was a lot of it and a lot of it was yeah working harvests we worked well between what 14 years of, of working there and the two open houses a year that's 28 open houses that we worked you know together um so you kind of get to really know the customer you get mm -hmm. to know what they're looking for you get to know how to speak to them about the wine. And the thing that I always try to teach my clients too is that, you know, treat, treat any online customer like you would somebody walking in your tasting room. So we were able just to apply, hey, what's working language, what's working price point, what's working offers and deals, you know, in the tasting room, and we just translate that to the online world. Uh, and so that's kind of how we got that on the ground experience, um, which was, you know, really helpful because going into it, it, it is hard to kind of get that that training and you know in this in this marketing world it's I think super helpful for anybody that wants to get into it to go work at a tasting room for you know a year or two and just really understand that flow and and then get into production a little bit and understand how the wine's actually made sure yeah sure so uh, when you started Luna Bean, you mentioned this a little bit, but what were some of the first challenges you faced? You, you already had a kind of a clientele who wanted you. Yeah. So what were the challenges you faced then? Um, more than, I mean, we've been really fortunate in this business where, and this is very indicative of the Oregon wine industry, that they kind of protect their own. And so, um, and just word of mouth. And so as we did a good job for client one, and, and then client one knows people in the industry and says, hey, Luna Bean would you know, be perfect for you guys. And so we've never actually had to market ourselves. <laughs> um, everything has, you know, I wouldn't say fallen in our lap because we've done a lot of hard work to get to where we are. Sure. But, um, but everything, you know, it's through reputation and it's through word of mouth that we, that we built our business and through honestly just being really consistent um, and, and making sure that we've been um, you know, there for our clients throughout. Um, but the challenges, you know, are, are, you know, any small business challenges, you know, uh, record keeping, bookkeeping, accountants, you know, filing the correct forms, you know, any of those kind of normal things. And, you know, we're just a small business and we just, you kind of have to figure that out on your own. Sure. Um, and you get advice where you can, but, um, but yeah, it's, it, it, the nice thing about our business is there's very little overhead. You know, we have an office, we have eight computers, but you know, um, there's not you know, a whole lot that needs to happen. We can do most of it in meetings, we can do most of it online. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a nice business from that standpoint. So take me back to when IPNC approaches you guys mm -hmm. to do their website and then you, you do it, yeah. what happens next? Uh, basically, we, we were, were very happy with, they kept that design for a good 11, 12 years. Um, and uh, it was just a, another project that was just kind of, we did another website, but we, we weren't really committed to doing that at the time. We were still trying to build up our, our video game mm -hmm. um, business. But then um, a few years later, uh, I attended, I don't even remember what year it was, 
It was in downtown Portland, and it was a marketing seminar for wineries. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't even recall who was doing it, but they were talking about SEO and SEM and you know, marketing. And I'm sitting there just kind of my BS meters going off left and right, you know, on kind of what they're telling, telling the wineries. And, and this kind of goes back to two. The, the reason we really got into this was in a lot of ways because at Panther Creek, where you're sitting there and you know, people are coming and trying to sell you stuff all the time because we were the taste room people. And, sure. and we could see how a winery would be very vulnerable to a lot of that kind of stuff, but they don't, because of our background in digital marketing and knowing everything, we would know the BS meter would go off on a lot of this stuff. And so part of the reason we got into the business was to kind of protect wineries and say, you know, I know you're being offered X, Y, and Z, but, and I'm happy that you should, you know, if you want to buy X, Y, and Z, that's great. I just want you going in with your eyes wide open about what this means, what the actually click-through rates are, you know, all these little kind of they're going to tell you that you're going to get this much, but what they really mean is this. Um, and so at this, at this seminar that I was at in downtown Portland, my BS meter is going off, and I thought, you know, there's really an opportunity here to reach out to wineries and say, you know, we kind of know what's going on here. And so when, you know, at the very least, just use this as a resource, mm -hmm. you know, just bounce ideas off of us. If you hear something, we're happy to answer you. Have a phone call, have an email. And one thing kind of led to another with that, and, and wineries started using us like that. Interesting. And, um, and I think because of kind of the, the breadth of our knowledge between on-site sales and wine clubs and you know all the online stuff, um, clients contact us for a variety of reasons. So they'll say, hey, we need email marketing. Sure, we can do that. We've been doing that for almost 20 years. Um, hey, we need social media help. Hey, we need a website. Whatever it is they need, we can supply. Sure. And once we get that in, then they see we do a good job. And then they kind of expand and tend to just use us for more and more stuff. So the goal is to kind of be you know, the, the solution for marketing for wineries and whatever they need, we can provide. Um, and that's part of the challenge too, is kind of getting that breadth of experience across the board. Yeah, well, let me ask you about that. How do you, when a winery approaches you, how yeah. do you decide what they need? Or do they know, how do they decide what they well, need? Well, I mean, it's, it's like in, any conversation you have with you know, a client. Um, they usually come knowing what they want to a certain extent. Um, and, and we either say that's a good idea or not. You know? <laughs> and it may be to our own detriment to say that. You know? and, and to say, well, you actually don't need that much of a website. Like, if you want that, we're happy to do that. You know? but, um, but what you actually need that's going to work for you is this. Um, and we just try to be really honest and upfront with our clients, which has served us very well over the years. So what makes uh, marketing wine unique compared to marketing other products? Well, I mean, aside from all the legalities and <laughs> um, shipping laws, sure. um, it's a luxury item. And particularly in the Oregon wine industry, it's a luxury item. So you have to know and not be scared of that you're selling a $60, $80 product that a lot of the world scoffs at and the, you know, like, why would you pay $80 for a bottle of wine? You know, the Safeway has it for $8.99. Um, so, so you just have to understand that, you know, A, that's your clientele. Don't be scared of it. Um, go for it. They, they want to pay you the $80. So let's have that conversation with them. You know, assume that they want the wine. Mm -hmm. Now, what do we need to do to get it to them? Um, and so selling a luxury product like that is, has its, some of its challenges where you, it's a smaller audience. You have to be really good at identifying them. Um, Wineries also, you know, often don't have, haven't done the best of, you know, job of record keeping and or mm -hmm. email database collection. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you walk into a winery and say, well, you know, what do you have for me to market to? And they don't have much. And so that's kind of a challenge to, to, to kind of build up that customer base with sure. them. Sure. So you kind of mentioned, you touched on this a little bit in the last answer, but what is your marketing philosophy? Oh, what's my marketing philosophy? Be nice. <laughs> um, be honest. 
and um, don't try to trick people, you know? Um, and, and you kind of, it kind of goes back to kind of the clickbaiting, and I always think of you know, email subject lines that say, you'll never guess our deal on this, <laughs> right? And, and that's, that's gonna get you a decent open rate, but is that courteous to your customer, you know? And particularly in the luxury wine marketplace, um, again, they, if I'm emailing somebody, they want to be contacted, right? Mm -hmm. they've, they've double opted in to hear from the winery you know, client of mine. Um, so I'm just very straightforward. Here's what it is, here's the offer. Um, and I think too, part of our philosophy at least, is that I don't, every, every communication I have with the customer, I, it's not a sales pitch. You know, maybe 20% of them are sales pitches. I want to be delivering value the other 80% of the time. Mm. Uh, and for example, that may be, here's a recipe. Mm. There's no marketing pitch involved in this email to you. It's just a great recipe for the 4th of July. Here you go, sure. right? Um, and so what happens there is you're basically looping you know, the wheel. So when you do make that pitch, six emails down the line, they remember you as somebody who they like, mm -hmm. who has given them value beyond the wine, um, and to try to kind of create that sense of, you know, they're not just the wine on the table. I feel like they're part of my family. I want to support this local farmer. Mm -hmm. I want to support the family. I want to support the people that work for them. Um, and, and, you know, and they're giving me things beyond the wine. You know, this recipe I made for Thanksgiving is a side dish from this winery, you know, and then all of a sudden it becomes a story. And now they're telling their friends and family about it. And then we have this tribe of enthusiasts that go out there and, and keep marketing for us. And so that, that's kind of the goal is just to kind of just be straightforward, be honest, be nice. You know, all, pretty much everybody in Oregon makes a really good wine. So that part's easy, yeah. you know, and that also makes it hard because everybody in Oregon makes a really good wine. Right. And so, um, so you kind of have to go beyond that. What can we offer them beyond great wine? What story can we tell? What other things of value can we offer? And so you, you're marketing for multiple wineries mm -hmm. uh, at the same time sometimes. Yeah. How, what are the challenges of that? Um, we're really careful about that, A. You know, um, we kind of think of them as silos and, and we keep certain ideas for certain wineries um, because we know, hey, like, you know, if we come upon an idea or we think of an idea that we really like, we kind of match that up to a client. We say, hey, we're, we're not telling eight of our clients this idea, we're telling you this idea. Mm -hmm. And we think this is gonna work really well for you. And we try to make sure that we kind of have enough ideas flowing and coming in that we can always continually um, uh, match that up. Um, so yeah, so we have to be careful with it. But they're usually, the, the stories and the people involved and even the wines they make tend to be different enough that we can market differently for, for each of our clients. But we tend to you know, try not to take too many in any one AVA. So it's not like we have eight Dundee Hills clients right. and you know, we're marketing the same thing for them all the time. So we try to keep it kind of um, you know, two or three per AVA and just kind of spread it out and yeah, keep so it that way. So you're not competing with yourself too much. Right, exactly, exactly. Do you have... Um when customers come to you and you talked about so, so they, they kind of know what they need mm -hmm. do you have how do you help them determine where they should market that's a good question um and a lot of a lot of times they kind of know where they want to reach out to um and we tend to be more of the digital marketing side dtc stuff digital you know, mm -hmm. direct to consumer mm -hmm. stuff so um so we, we can have the trade talk with them and where they should be distributed and you know where are you now and what are the plans for that and can we kind of you know lay the groundwork for an expansion there mm -hmm. um, but typically if a winery comes to us knowing or even asking a distribution question, they're pretty far beyond in their marketing than often what we get from the mom and pop side of things. Mm -hmm. um, so it's more of, hey, we are expanding into Texas and into you know Georgia mm -hmm. in the next six months. Let's, you know, what can we do to make sure people there know about it, right? And so that's kind of where we help from that kind of top-down level. Um, 
so yes, yeah, so usually from the more distribution, you know, where they want to market specific states, they usually have an idea of what they want to do. And how do the wineries who approach you, I, I, they, they know your reputation, they know you work mm -hmm. else. Do they, do they ever express concerns to you about working with multiple wineries in A the same area? A few do. Um, you know, just conflict of interest stuff that's mm -hmm. fairly normal. Um, and, and we just kind of give them this, the same speech in a lot of ways I just gave you, which was just that we're very careful about it. Our reputation is, is what it is. Uh, we've been doing this a long time, mm -hmm. and there are going to be some similar. We, there are things that work, and there are things that don't work. You know, if I, a shipping offer is going to work for you, you know, and that's, you know, but your shipping offer is going to be different than somebody else's shipping offer. Sure, the, sure. the wines offered will be different. Um, but then there are specific, you know, just beyond transactional emails that you know the actual ideas the stories and without mentioning names you know you, you try to come up with uh, we got a new client a few months ago and we're doing a lot of the marketing for them and so we try to come up with new and novel ideas for okay based on you and based on your audience and what they want to see we think it'd be really cool if we started this series of emails that's going to do x y and z mm -hmm. um, not marketing or I'm sorry not transactional marketing at all it's just storytelling we need to tell the story of your property of your people and that's different than the story of another sure. winery's property and people. And we're gonna do it in a different way too. Um, so, so there's some concern here and there, but, um, but generally speaking, um, you know, we, we make sure that we're very upfront about it and that we never share you know, results, ideas, anything sure. like that. We have kind of this you know, big cloud of what we know works over the years, right? And we can pull from that knowledge, um, but it's never, hey, hey, this winery did this and it was great, you should do this. Uh -huh. You know, it's, it's very much, it's much more kind of, okay, we, we know these six things that worked, let's kind of refit them and form them to what, what you can do without never stealing of an idea or stealing of a, yeah, of a solution. So I'm, I'm curious. You've mentioned that you, you know you, that the, the the product and the and the people in the story are, are different enough, and I've it's interesting to me because we have a lot of you have a lot of similar businesses. You have a lot of people. We have a lot of family farm type mm -hmm. businesses selling Pinot Noir, similar quality, right. similar price, similar area. So what do you focus on, like to differentiate? Sure, it's funny. In a lot of my workshops, I, I literally have this section where it's, you know, so we all make 93 plus Pinots. <laughs> we're all biodynamic now, aren't we? You know, we're right. all, um, we all have the dog in the vineyard, right? Uh, and so it's it, right. And so you kind of get to that point where where what is it? And so mm -hmm. we go we go down the list, and what it becomes is is the people behind the product. And a lot of the times, you, and more and more in the wine industry, it's particularly in Oregon, um, you're not selling wine anymore. You're selling the people behind the wine. Right. You're selling the story of the wine, the, the the romanticism of Oregon wine country. You know, that's that's what you're selling. Mm -hmm. The wine is almost irrelevant at that point. <laughs> Everybody knows it's good. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just what what's what's their story? What can we hook into them? And and then I show examples um, of really boring stories. You know, that are just basically like we're ultra high premium. You know, Pinot Noir that's made. Blah blah. blah mm -hmm. Everybody's story. I mean, mm -hmm. if you look at the IPNC website and you look at the 60 people from Oregon, you know, you just go down that list. You have the little snippets of stories. It's actually a really constructive exercise because you can start to see that. Oh wow, what is the one that sticks out? And it's personality. Um, it's it's a different kind of story. Mm -hmm. It's it's just we kind of look for those things. And and the way we get at it is. Um, when I sit down with a new client, I'll kind of do a round table and I'll get the winemaker, the owner, taste room manager, uh, vineyard manager, all the stakeholders. And they've rarely ever been in the same room, <laughs> I often find, right? Right. Um, and then I kind of go around and I say, okay, give me two sentences about your winery. What, what is it that you love about your winery? What is it that makes your winery different? Why do you like working here? 
and you know, we start to pull out common threads, but everybody has a little bit of a different take on it. So we kind of get, A, that winery, people who work their perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second kind of round of things that we tend to do is to interview or send out um, surveys to your wine club members. Mm. Because oftentimes, you know, A, they're your best customers, they're your most loyal customers, um, and they're always willing to help, which is awesome too. <laughs> and so, so we'll send out surveys to wine club members and kind of ask them similar questions, which is, you know, why do you love our wine? You know, what is it about our wine that you tell friends and family when you serve our wine? That kind of thing. And all of a sudden, you start to see, oh, how are other people organically talking about my winery? What do I think of my winery? And then that's how that story starts to form. That's how you can start to differentiate yourself. You, you hit on the key points that people are already telling you why they're buying your wine, mm -hmm. and then you just kind of reiterate that in the marketing materials, because um, you know that that's already resonating. Sure. Yeah. That's a really interesting method. I like that. That's yeah. really cool. Um, so on that topic, what, have you, what, what marketing trends have you noticed recently in Oregon wine? In Oregon, it's, so Oregon wine and, and, and the, Oregon wine, or the wine industry in, in total is a little behind in the technology world, as you may, as you may know. So, so trends with, it's interesting, I could probably say what's going on now mm -hmm. and wait five years and Oregon will be doing it, right? <laughs> so so look, look at what you know, high tech companies are doing now and that will eventually trickle down. Mm -hmm. um, but what I'm seeing is um, more and more the past two or three years, Oregon wineries are, I shouldn't say finally because I, I neither here nor there, but are, are kind of on the social media bandwagon now. Um, they, for a long time, I think they tried to resist it. I think for a long time they thought it was trendy. Um, it was reaching a demographic that they didn't necessarily know needed to be reached yet, um, or their demographic wasn't on it, so they thought. Um, and it seems to be more and more now they're realizing, oh crap, we better get on this. Um, even if it's just Facebook, or just Instagram, or whatever it is, and I always recommend just, uh, you know, I get a very common, what platform should I be on? Be on the platform you like, right? It's just which one are you gonna actually use and be authentic on, sure. you know? And so if that's Instagram for you, go for it. But yeah, but, but now there's definitely, we get more and more questions and, and getting more clients now that are just pure social media, um, as opposed to what we you know, tend to do more of is websites and email marketing and just mm -hmm. marketing strategy and consulting and that kind of thing. But you know, when they come to us saying, hey, can you do our social media? Yeah, we can do that. Um, we've done that for a long time, so. Um, so yeah, so, so definitely the social media becoming more important. Um, I think too there's, there's starting to be, and, and thank goodness for this, a sense that we need data in this industry. Um, marketing data, not just you know, what, what were the yields and you know, what did we thin this crop down to this year and what was the TA of that wine this year. You know, I, winemakers have always had the data. Mm -hmm. um, but the marketing side of things ne hasn't necessarily. Um, so I think there's starting to be, particularly now that most wineries have some sort of POS system that can capture customer data and we can kind of look through and what is sold well and what's our you know, club you know, uh, recidivism rate, what's our, it's just all that kind of stuff that we can now analyze um, is becoming more and more important. I think as the competition becomes more and more you know, um, tight. So, um, so that's definitely happening as well right now. Um, and then the, in tasting rooms themselves, you're starting to see the, the seated tastings, which is the experiential mm -hmm. tasting, right? And this has kind of drifted up from California. Um, and, and, for, and for good reason. I mean, the, the club conversion rate on a seated tasting is 19% versus stand up at the bar is 3%, yeah, right? right? And so you can kind of see why wineries are doing it. Um, but right now, you're, you're starting to see, like, if you look at any winery's website, you'll start to see that they're having some sort of scheduled, seated, experiential tasting, whether that's a vineyard thing or just, you know, private mm -hmm. little group. So, um, so that's very trendy right now, too. But, and I shouldn't say trendy, because that is something that they should be doing, because it's, 
going to get you more club members. But um, so those are the kind of the three things I see right now. Interesting. So as we've talked to winemakers over the years and wine owners and anybody else involved, this is generally their least favorite part of it, right? They yeah. usually love everything about wine yeah. except selling it. So is that? Would that explain why there's not much data? Would that explain why there's not much? Yeah, and that's, it's interesting. I mean, I always kind of make the joke that um, basically that a lot of people, most people got into the Oregon wine industry for passion. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point they said, oh crap, we actually have to sell it, <laughs> right? right? You know, oh, we, we make it, we're, we're, we're buying huge tanks, we're you know, investing in infrastructure, and oh, there is the side of it where we actually need to get it into consumers' hands. And, and that seems to be a realization that's come along in the past five, you know, 10 years um, as well. And so, um, so I think with that realization, with the competition factor, with money coming in from California and France, with this kind of, you know, Oregon has, has grown, I, I think we're seeing a very interesting maturity of the Oregon wine industry right now. And I think with that becomes more of the business side of things all of a sudden. Whereas before you could just kind of, hey, we make wine, we're, we kind of made money this year, kind of not <laughs> next year, it was okay. And, and now it's like, oh crap, what should, we should probably, actually track this stuff and see how we can grow um, so that we're viable 10 years from now, 15 years from now. So as the, as the business, as the industry gets more competitive and bigger, mm -hmm. suddenly that stuff becomes more, more important. Yeah, it, it does. And, and I'm seeing it, I mean, even in being approached for work more and more, you know, just and the types of things they're asking for mm -hmm. um, is, is much more, um, like I said, data driven. Um, much more not marketing 101, but you know, high, mm -hmm. high level marketing, which is great for us. I mean, because that's, it just means there's more knowledge about it. There's more need for it. Um, so I think that's a, it's a wide open category to, to serve the industry like that. Sure. You've touched on this a little bit already and, and beyond just like the platform, mm -hmm. what else has changed about what wineries want from you in the last 10, 15 years? <sighs> that's interesting. Um, what has changed? Not, I mean, not, honestly, not a whole lot. It's still, I mean, so it kind of goes back to, it, you know, selling wine is, is relationship-based, right? It's, you just grow that relationship with your customers. You give them a wonderful experience when they're in your tasting room. Um, and so that's always going to be the case. The, the question is, you know, is there a platform that does that better than any others? And the answer is no. It's just you have at your disposal now 16 different platforms, right? <laughs> right. And so, so it's just which one of these are you most comfortable being the most authentic and relationship-based, you know, for this particular winery? Um, so I think, I think what's always true about the wine industry is that it's always going to be relationship-based. So no matter what platform, no matter what trend is out there, you just kind of apply what you've always done to that platform and that trend. And if, if Facebook goes away in five years, something else is gonna come along. But that doesn't mean that that effort was wasted. It just right. means that you're just now on a different platform right. doing the same thing. Right. Telling your story, being authentic, being nice, being helpful, right? And, and so that's kind of what it comes down to. Um, and as far as kind of what, what they've been asking for, I mean, I guess it does go back to this, I think more than anything we've seen over the past year and a half, maybe two years, is just social media. The acceptance, finally, mm -hmm. that it is a thing they need to be on, particularly as their wine club demographic is getting older and older and needs to be replaced as they're retiring and their incomes become fixed. Um, they're starting to realize the millennials um, and, and my generation, the, the, the Xers, kind of are need to be that next, we need to get them now, so 20 years from now, they are our 60-year-old wine club members, right? Um, and before, I think they were kind of okay just floating along with what they have. Right. Um, so there's kind of that 
that grab for it. And I think there is a, a common misunderstanding that social media equals young people, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I said, well, actually the fastest growing demographic on Facebook is, you know, women 60 years and older, right? I mean, percentage wise. Mm -hmm. And so you have to say, you know, no, your current customers are also on these platforms and they're looking at their grandkids and they're looking at, you know, they're, they're on it just like everybody else is. Um, so, so that realization, things that I've, I've never beaten it over people's heads that they should be on any one thing. The, it's not my job to convince them. When they're ready, they're ready, and they'll come to me, right? <laughs> right. And so, um, but now they're ready, and I'm seeing that they're coming to us for that kind of thing now, definitely. So speaking of that, what does the uh, typical Oregon wine buyer look like, and is that changing? It is changing. I mean, it depends on the winery, obviously. Um, but if you're talking, you know, 45 to 65-year-old, fairly high income, disposable income, travels, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of the audience is fairly local, you know, um, but, but the reach is also huge. I mean, we, most of my clients have customers in every state, you know, mm -hmm. easily. Um, but at the same time, the club members are, you know, 50%, 70% local, you know, so you kind of have to make sure that you are always marketing to, you know, you know geographically marketing, demographically marketing, you know, previous purchase marketing and, and kind of combining that matrix of everything into whatever you're trying to get them to do at any given time. Um, but yeah, but the, that's, you know, the, that's the typical customer and, and what they're after now is, you know, and I, I kind of give the example of a few years ago, um, all the luxury car manufacturers started making the $30,000 entry car, right? Yeah. So Audis were always 60 and Mercedes were always $60,000, but all of a sudden now they have their $30,000 car. And the whole reason for that was to get the millennials, to get me into that $30,000 car so that I would eventually bump up to the $60,000 car. And that's the exact same thing that they need to be doing for one club membership is to offer some sort of lower entry point where that entry point isn't $600 a year, right. it's $150 a year. We get you into the club, we get you loving our story, we get you loving the people behind the story, and over time now, they will grow and purchase more and more wine and, and kind of graduate up. And so that same trend that you saw happening in, in the luxury auto mm -hmm. world is the same thing that you can translate to kind of the luxury wine world. Um, so, so that kind of thing is, is also happening. And you're seeing that. That's we are, happening. and, and we're, we're driving a lot of it in the sense of, um, you know, when we consult with new clients saying, you know, what, what are the club? What is your club currently? Well, okay, well, how would you feel about offering a lower entry point? Um, and the clients that have done that and have, you know, consistently kept up on it have seen their sales grow pretty significantly. Um, so it's a, it's a, you know, to get that customer in and get them in the club is, is really important. It's just recurring income, it's mm -hmm. cash flow that they can depend on. Mm -hmm. And even if they don't graduate up to the three case a year club, that they still buy more wine from you than they would have just a la carte based on their discount and based on them coming to club events and based on them. And, and my whole thing is if I have more customers who love my story and are out there sharing this wine with their friends and family, that's marketing I can never do. Right. That's just classic word of mouth marketing. Right. Like, and even beyond, because the passion these people have often for, for the brand is just, oh, you have to have this wine. <laughs> you know? And you know, it's, it's, again, it's experiential. If we can just translate that to their table, as opposed to in the tasting room. Right. Yeah, I mean, what an amazing thing we've accomplished there. So. And there's so many people out there, I think, overwhelmed by what's the wine I should buy. If I, ha if I have the money yeah. to buy, having that word of mouth marketing is the best possible. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, is there a is there a uh, either a typical or a most common concern your clients come to you with? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, other than we want to sell more wine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would hope they come with that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, people are scared of um, over communicating. Um, 
Winers are always, you know, when I say, okay, how many emails a month are you sending? Oh, we send four a year. Oh, geez, okay. <laughs> we send one a month. Okay, like we're getting there. But like they're, they're very scared of, of bothering their customer, mm -hmm. um, which I understand. Um, I get that. People don't want to be bothered. Um, and so that's, that's a common concern is just, okay, if we're going to jump into this marketing game and contact our customers frequently, what is the kind of breaking point of it being annoying, you know, of, of, of driving them away mm -hmm. by too much communication. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of a common concern that we get just on a very kind of superficial level of, of you know, beyond just how, how do we grow our sales. Um, now that we're actually growing your sales, you know, what are the things that, that go along with that? Um, so that'd be one thing. So based on all of this, what would you say the most important aspect of your job is? <sighs> I don't know. Being a psychotherapist for a lot of them? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I think, I think a lot of it is, um, I think what we provide wineries beyond just the good old marketing and, and execution of the marketing is, is being reliable and dependable. That if, um, that a lot of these mom and pop operations, now that they realize that marketing is important, um, feel that they can outsource a vast majority of it to us and know it's gonna be done right, mm -hmm. know it's gonna be done um, in a trustworthy way um, and in an honest way. You know, that again, I, I'm of the same philosophy they are. I don't wanna bother your customers either, but I'm <laughs> gonna tell you to email them a little bit more than once a month. But, um, but you know, that, that my values um, are in line with their values. Um, that we're part of this industry, have been for almost two decades now. Mm -hmm. um, we've grown with them in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think, I think providing that sense of security in a lot of ways, not knowing that we're some unknown quantity sure. from New York marketing firm coming in saying, hey, we want to do wine marketing and we don't know anything about it, but look at all these fun stats mm -hmm. and, you know, figures and things that move. Um, I think for a large, you know, because again, anybody can do marketing, right? I mean, but it, it becomes at a certain point, are you aligned with, with the customer? Do you know the industry inside and out so that when you are speaking to their customers, you're speaking in the same exact way they would? So you mentioned outside of firms. Uh, have you seen a growth in your industry? A little bit, um, but it's mostly homegrown, mm -hmm. um, and partly, uh, probably from your efforts here too. It's just you know, it's more of a realization that that I think I think when we started, it was like kind of like we I kind of fell into it, and okay, well, if people keep telling us they want to give us money, we should take it, kind of thing, you know. But and and we didn't know if there was a. Um, a future in that or not, honestly. You know, we didn't know how long this would be. And if you look at the you know, economic impact studies that you know of, I mean, 2005 is a, what, 1.3 billion, and in 2013 it's 3.2 billion. I mean, it's, it's just growing and growing and growing. So yeah. point being, um, there's more room now. There, there, wineries need these services. There's you know, exponentially more wineries, well not exponentially, but multiple many, times many more, more wineries. I mean, when we started, they put Panther Creek maybe 50-ish, you know? 75-ish, you know, in the Willamette Valley, and we're up to what, 350 now, yeah. 375. Um, and so, particularly these, these mom and pop shops that pop up that um, are retired people that made their money in some other world and come in and hire their vineyard manager, to, you know, they're just basically outsourcing the, mm -hmm. the branding and, and the creating of the wine, but they want to be involved in the process because they love it. Um, those people need the marketing services and you know and we can't service 600 wineries you know and so i think there's definitely room and i think there's definitely growth for that and we are seeing some organic um stuff popping up and i think in the same way the oregon wine industry grew it's it's just you know it's not like it's competition for us it's just other people doing what we're doing mm -hmm. um and, and a lot of times we collaborate you know we kind of have a trusted 
group of people that we work with regularly, and we run into them a lot in various <laughs> capacities, sure. you know, graphic designers, copywriters, developers, that kind of thing, and we all help each other on, on a variety of projects. So I think it's also very you know, analogous to how the, the Oregon wine industry itself grew in that same kind of way, sharing information, sharing knowledge, hey, what worked this year, what worked this year, so, yeah. Sure. So then what do you think the future of wine marketing looks like in the Willamette Valley? I think um, that's an interesting question. I think, I think you have to ask first, what's the future of wineries look like in the Willamette Valley? And, um, and kind of a reticence to go the Napa way versus let's keep it really authentic and you know, more passive Sonoma kind of way, mm -hmm. right? Because you know, what you always hear in the Oregon wine industry is we don't want to be the next Napa. And I think everybody's on board with that. <laughs> um, and I think that we want to make sure that it's, it's authentic. Um, you can still belly up to the bar and the winemaker is the one pouring the wine for you that they'll still grab a thief and pull something from the barrel for you. Um, but you're starting to see with some of the bigger wineries, and, and this is not to, to pick on them at all, but more of that luxury experience. And you see, you know, the ones that are popping up big buildings and really high-end facilities, um, tourist magnets in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. Um, so I think what we'll end up seeing is um, more and more of that kind of thing. Um, which requires bigger marketing staffs, which require more in-house marketing staffs. Um, so, you know, as that top five, ten percent keeps growing, I think people like us aren't going to be serving them a whole lot. They, they're going to have in-house mm -hmm. people doing a lot of that kind of thing. But as kind of that other ninety percent tries to keep up, um, I think we'll just kind of keep having work, and I think the trend is just going to be to keep growing. Um, with them. So I don't, yeah, I think you kind of look at the trajectory of the industry itself and it's just going to keep growing. So there's just more and more opportunities to, to service them, not only in our industry, but in every kind of <laughs> tangential industry there is with that. I mean, you know, every forklift needs propane, right? And so it's just like, there's going to be more propane sold. Um, so, so that kind of thing is just going to grow with the industry as it grows. But, but hopefully we can all steer it more towards the keep it authentic, keep it real, keep it so people truly, and they still do, enjoy coming here and you know, being a tourist destination, a world-class tourist destination. But I think there's definitely more of that focus right now, is, is more of the tourism aspect um, and focusing on that as a, as a major play, not only in the US, but worldwide, to, to get people to know that we're the place to be. Right. Yeah. So what's the future for Luna Bean look like? <sighs> well, I don't know. <laughs> um, no, things are, it, it's, it's kind of just keeping on, keeping on, you know, it's just um, where we continually get um, new and interesting clients. There's all, like, part of the fun of it is that every client is different. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, when, when people say, hey, you know, what do you do? I'd be like, well, it just depends on the client. You know, just <laughs> right. every single client has their own, their own kind of issues um, and their own solutions, therefore. Um, but yeah, we just keep, you know, we, interesting projects keep coming into our lap. And like I said, we're very lucky to, to have that be the case for us. Um, and so we're, we've gotten to the point, and, and I'm old enough now, where I'm starting to say no to some things, <laughs> you know. And, but again, a luxury place to be in our sure, career, sure. Um, where we don't have to take every little thing that comes our way. And so, um, which means we have more time to focus on you know, the clients that we love um, and more time to kind of dedicate towards, you know, building our own knowledge and doing side projects that we enjoy doing. Um, and so, so yeah, the future of Luna Bean is just kind of to, to keep growing, um, keep providing, you know, great customer service and, and marketing for, for our clients, but to, I think, focus down more on fewer clients um, and bigger projects. And I should have asked this earlier, but 
why Luna Bean? Why did you name it that? <laughs> so, so it goes back to um, the, the video game strategy guide company and not having any marketable skills whatsoever. <laughs> um, so and, and I guess we registered that domain name in 2000. Um, and it was at a time when we had no idea what we wanted to do with ourselves. And we needed somewhere to build a website. And we, our cat's name was Luna. <laughs> And we wanted Luna Beam with an M, which like half of our clients still think we are Luna Beam. Um, and, and, and it was, it was interesting. I mean, we, we made the conscious decision that at the time you're looking at that Yahoo was big and Google was big. And what does Yahoo have to do with what they do? Nothing. It's just a generic name that's applied to, to a brand, right? Mm -hmm. Same with Google. Just, I mean, we all, you know, it's a mathematical thing, but I mean, right. we all know that if you say Google, people wouldn't know that you're a search engine. So we needed something generic enough that in whatever we ended up doing, could it could it could apply? And, and what's funny about it is that through the video, so we were just lunabean.com, and and that was all the video game stuff. And then we had our own tribe called Lunabeanies, and we had this huge group of, I mean, and again, the, the message boards were was 10% talk about video games and 90% talk about you know life and everything else. And we were on it, you know, all the time. And so we understood that that tribe building. But so yeah, so we had Lunabeanies, and then when we kind of translated it over to the wine world. We had that, that name kind of stuck with us in a lot of ways. We just became Luna Bean Media. Um, and any kind of side project that we do now with like the bottle shot stuff we're doing now, we're Luna Bean uh, Bottle Project. We're Luna Bean whatever. And you know, n n yeah. Allison and I, we're neither here nor there on the name, honestly. But it's just <laughs> at this point, like, you're not going to rebrand that sure, 20 sure. years down the line. It's just like, oh, we're now introducing in trust marketing group, you know, right, or whatever. Like, right. um, we're just Luna Bean. We're just kind of stuck with it. So yeah. That's how that. I'm so glad it has to do with a cat. That's, yeah, of that's, course. That's wonderful. Well, and everybody like in the bank like thinks we're a coffee bean supplier. You know, so it's just sure. like, yeah. <laughs> you know? It's an even better story than I hoped. Uh, it's really wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so, last question for you is, uh, what advice? You gave us a little bit earlier, but what mm -hmm. advice would you have someone who wanted to do what you do? Um, talk to me first to see if I want to hire you, <laughs> and that, no. Um, so, so I think I think generally. Um, you know, a learn your marketing 101 stuff. You know, because because it can, it's honestly, it's important. It can be applied, um, but you have to have that base level of knowledge. With is exactly what I said earlier. You need to get on the ground. And in this industry is weird and crazy, and there are characters, and it's a fun industry to market. I mean, it's not like you're just marketing, you know, any old widget or you mm -hmm. know whatever. It's you know really boring stuff. There's there's excitement here. Um, and so, yeah, you need to get on the ground. You need to work in a few tasting rooms. You need to work in a few different levels of tasting rooms, even if it's just part-time for two summers in a row, you know? And then volunteer, be a cellar rat, you know, just for one harvest, just to kind of understand what it's like to have earwigs and be sticky every single night, you know? And you're going to bed and pulling an earwig out of your hair. Like, you have to understand that, that there's the luxury side that the consumer has, and then there's the, uh, you know, it takes a lot of beer to make wine mm -hmm. side of things that winemakers have. And it's a, there are spiders in your wine. There are earwigs in your wine. You know, they eventually get filtered out, but you know, <laughs> like it's not, it's not a luxury process to make high-end right. wine. Sure. And I think if you understand both sides of that equation, you have a better grasp of, um, A, I do need to talk to a luxury clientele, but B, that luxury clientele is fascinated by the craft aspect of, of the handmade quality of things. And to see grapes going along conveyor belt in the sorting line, and that's all hand done, and you're looking for second crop and botrytis, and, and all these little things that go into that. If you have an understanding of that side of it, you can fascinate that clientele on two levels, both the luxury romanticism mm -hmm. and the these are the people making your wine mm -hmm. level. So I think having that experience, both the production side and the retail side, is, is important. Um, 
and then yeah, just um, kind of just keep up on the trends. Visit taste. I mean, one of the best things you do is go out in the valley and visit 18 tasting rooms over the next six months, and just kind of make notes about what 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 was what would have gotten you to purchase the wine. Was there a good spiel? Was there something you know? And again, then I just kind of take that and I translate that to the online world. That's mm -hmm. how I kind of develop a lot of the marketing, you know, um, the literature and stuff like that. It's just, you know, what, what would attract me to it? What, and granted, you're not your own customer, but you kind of say, you know, this resonated with me or they did a really good job at this. And, and why did that work mm -hmm. beyond the, it was just a nice spiel. Like, oh, because they told a story that was interesting. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting, you know, and you kind of start to deconstruct the stories and analyze them. So yeah, so I, I would just say, get experience in the industry and, you know, learn your marketing 101 stuff and, you can go pretty far. Excellent, thank you. Yeah, of course. Well, that's all the questions I have for you. Is there anything I should have asked you or anything else you'd like to add? Ah, I'm trying to think. Um, I don't think so. I think it was a Good. pretty, yeah, pretty <laughs> thorough interview. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.